I just want to build on that, what Vanessa was sharing a little bit. We, we, so, we so believe that God's Word wants to speak to us today in our lives. You know, even what she was sharing there, working out of Isaiah and just how, how powerful of a message that chapter of the Bible is to us even today, thousands of years after it was written. And it, it was like it was written yesterday, right? It, it's like it was just written yesterday. And for, and for somebody here today, it was like it was just written for you just today. It was, it, 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 as she was sharing, it was the, you came in, you were like, that's exactly what I needed to hear. That's exactly what I needed to hear. So sometimes the Bible, we read it, it can, it can be a little confusing, admittedly. It uses language that we're not familiar with. It draws from metaphors that are unfamiliar to us. And a big part of that is because so much of the Bible, it's, it's poetry. It's, there, there's, there's, there's an art to some of what's written in there, especially when you get in Psalm, Psalms and in the prophets. And it, it is true today, even songs that, that we sing today. We were, Vanessa and I were joking just the other day. We were at the, the worship uh, event for Virginia Unity Project. So good. Some of you came out. And as we worshiped together, it was such an amazing night. And Vanessa and I were, were, were joking at our home later that night that even some of the words of the songs, we sang one of them tonight. We're like, I have no idea what that means, right? The, the sound of power on my lips. We're like, Vanessa was like, what does that mean? I was like, I don't know what that means, right? We were like two old people in our kitchen having a conversation about, right? And, and Claire overhears us and pipes in and says, mom, it's a metaphor. We're like, we know it's a metaphor. We just don't know what the metaphor means, Right? And, and sometimes that's for you. You're, you're, you're reading scripture and you're, and you're going, I have no idea what this means. And, and, and what I would say to you, don't get discouraged because there's going to be other parts and there's going to be such clarity. And, and, and the Holy Spirit, that's his role in our lives. Is as we begin to dig, as we begin to read, there's clarity that you are going to find in these stories, in these truths, in this poetry that literally has the power to begin to transform your lives. As we were worshiping, one of the, the, the phrases I felt like God was speaking to me, which I believe is an answer to a question that somebody here has been asking, and it could be that you actually verbalized and vocalized this to someone this week. And, and the question is, why would I trust my life to such an ancient book? Why would I trust my life to a book that was written so long ago by people that I don't know? Why would I trust my life to the words that are on those pages? And what I feel like God wants to say to you tonight is that even though this is an ancient book, it has a contemporary voice. And that God is an active presence and a living voice, which means that when you open this up, it's different from any other book that you're ever going to read. Is that when you open this book, you create an audience with the creator of the universe and the Spirit of God comes and sits with you as you read and begins to enable you to see things and understand things that you would not otherwise be able to see and understand. He'll enable you to see and understand things that are beyond your education when it comes to this book. He'll enable you to see and understand things that are beyond the time that you've spent in study. There's understanding that comes through study, but there is understanding, I'm telling you, that comes through revelation. If Jesus does not come back for another thousand years, if he doesn't come back, we know he's coming because he promised he was. 
If he doesn't come back for another thousand, right? Let's say three thousand, right? So it's been two. Let's say it's another one. If if another thousand years goes by, three thousand years from now, this book will be more ancient than it is today. But you know what else it's going to be? It's going to be just as contemporary. It's going to be just as contemporary. God picked a nation, Israel, gave them a culture and a practice and a religious tradition. He formed an entire nation so that throughout all of time, there would be something that all people, no matter what time we're in, no matter what our nationality is, that we would be able to look into that nation and into that practice through the lens of Scripture and find answers for how we're supposed to live today. How we're supposed to live today. This book is one of the greatest gifts that you're ever going to experience in this life. So if, you've, if this is you, I'm telling you, if, if you've been asking the question, why would I trust my life to a book that is so ancient? What God would say to you today, yes, it is ancient, but it's a contemporary voice. It has the answers to the questions that you need. And if that's you, we would love to talk more about that with you. If you are here tonight and you're saying, Fred, I don't even have a Bible, you come see us. We're going to make sure that we'll get one into your hands. There's so many different, right? That can be intimidating. You go to the Christian bookstore and you look at the small and you're like, I don't, right? There's so many different translations, so many different versions. We can help you find one that you're going to be able to understand that's going to be easy for you to read. So Father, whoever you're speaking to tonight, whether it's through this moment when Vanessa was up here or during the worship, God, during the times of prayer, that people here tonight, they would have an overwhelming sense of your abiding presence. The person that's in here tonight, God, that needs to know that, that you're just as alive and even more real than the person that's sitting next to them. Awaken them to who you are tonight. Awaken them to your presence. In Jesus' name, come on, and everybody said, amen. Hey, let me, can I, let me do a couple of giveaways. Can I do that? We're eventually going to get to this message. Welcome to the City Life Church, right? This is for Jamal. Did I see Jamal come in? Where's Jamal? I'm going to bring it to you, but let me tell you this, right? So, so, so last, no, it's not one of those stories. Usually when the word Jamal and story happen in the same sentence, right? I know, we all know. So, so I, we've got those stories too. But, but last week, you know, if, if you've been with us for any amount of time, you know that we're in the process, right? This building is, is being donated to us. It's an incredible story. And uh, Jeff Mingi with Catalyst Church is going to be the church that's going to be coming in here, uh, forming a partnership with us. It's going to be in here on uh, Sunday mornings. He came uh, to visit last Saturday night just to hang out, just to see what it looks like when we're here. And he sat right up in the, in the balcony over there. I loved it, too, because as we were uh, 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 praying uh, uh, last week. Who was the family we were praying for just last week? Yes, the Gallingans. He snapped a picture of all of us gathered around them from the balcony. It was so great. And then we were able to give that to the Gallagans that showed the church around them. It was so, so thoughtful, right? That he was here visiting and, and, and had the presence of mind to do that. But he sent me a text and he said, this is what he said. He said, Fred, I walked into that church. I just wanted to slip in, right? I didn't want to be a distraction. I just wanted to come, see what it's like. And he said, there was a guy that I met. His name is Jamal. And he made me feel so welcomed, so welcome. I was like, come on, come on. And then while I'm standing in this general vicinity, how about a little love for Sean Slaughter, Teacher of the Year? Come on. Hey, hey. 
One of the greatest moments of my life personally was not too long ago when we were riding out for the men's getaway and we were going to shoot sporting clays together and Sean was riding with me and, and, uh, and I introduced him to some music that he had never heard of before. I was like, I? This is, right? This is the highlight of my life. Sean Slaughter, DJ extraordinaire. Heard about music from 52-year-old Fred Michaud. I know. It's like, I'm done. I could just retire right now. I could just retire right now. I would also say before I get into this message, if you need someone to pray with you about a miracle, if you need a gift of faith, you can find anyone in the Fields family back there because they're Auburn fans. And so there is, there is an anointing of faith that's on that family. They're right back there. They'll pray with you at the end of the service. I know. I know. Who would have thought? I know. And if you're here tonight and you're a North Carolina fan and you're saying that's not fair, I would say, well, you must have some sin in your life because <laughs> all those prayers that you were praying apparently went unanswered. They all went to Duke instead. They all went to Duke. They all went to Duke. Okay. That's enough NCAA. Oh, so good. Loving this new order of service that we're experimenting with, right? It's just, the, the intention of it is to, is to take the, the meat of worship and put it right in with the, with the message. And so just want to keep reminding you if it feels different for you, uh, that's the motivation behind it. Uh, we're going to use the traditional uh, order of service the, the uh, first weekend of every month for communion because we want to have that extended worship set on the front end. Uh, but we're so enjoying just the, uh, God's prophetic voice and how it's flowing right from the worship into the word. And so that was all Chris House, his idea. So come on. In a staff meeting. So good. Well, we're in a series uh, called Break, Break the Yoke. Break the Yoke. And we have done a deep dive. Just let me, let me do a little bit of recap in, in case you've not been here for the last couple of weeks. Uh, we did a deep dive on Isaiah 10, 27, where if you've grown up in church, then you've, you've learned this phrase, the, the, the anointing breaks the yoke. And, 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 and that's a true statement. It just should not be connected to this verse. It's not a part of this verse. It's a part of Luke 4, 18. It's a part of Acts 10, 38. All these notes, a PDF every week, will be online. Uh, if you're a note taker, we move faster than you would prefer. You can download that through our website. Um, but it should not be connected to Isaiah 10, 27. Isaiah 10, 27, how it should read is, is this. So it will be in that day that his burden will be removed from your shoulders. Talking about the Assyrian Empire who's now conquered Israel. It says, though, that, that his burden will be removed from your shoulders and his yoke right, will be removed from your neck. And the yoke will be broken because of fatness. That's, that's the actual Hebrew and how it should be translated. And, and so the King James, they, 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 they had a filter as they, they were translating the, the, the Hebrew from these other parts of the Bible. But by doing that, it overshadowed a truth that you and I need to know. That this idea of the yoke will be broken because of fatness means that Israel, even though it's in a place of despair, it will one day return to a place of such spiritual strength that they will shatter the yoke of bondage that another nation has tried to put upon them. Now you and I need, we need that truth in our life. This is part of the contemporary voice 
of God's word is that you and I need to know that there are times where God's going to divinely intervene and he's going to bring freedom and liberty to our lives in areas where there's bondages, things that are just holding us back. But there are also times where God is not going to come in and intervene supernaturally because he wants us to experience what it's like to grow spiritually to the point where those bondages just begin to break free from our lives. It's what the New Testament would call discipleship. It's why discipleship is such a central part of who we are as a church, is that we want you to experience spiritual fatness. It's what Pastor David alluded to in that first worship wrap-up, the the 12 pathways of all of these things that I'm saying are new for you. There's a green book that's free to you. Go grab someone in a blue shirt at the end of the service. We'd love to give that to you as a gift. But these 12 pathways are the spiritual fatty foods of our lives. Psalm 27, 13, hallmark verse for us. I would have lost heart if I had not believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. You've got to connect that verse to Deuteronomy 29, 29. Deuteronomy 29, 29 reads this way. The Lord our God has secrets known to no one, right? There's parts of this Bible that, are, that will forever elude us. There's secrets that are not even in here that we're not going to know until we get to heaven. The Lord our God has secrets known to no one. We're not accountable for them. But we and our children are accountable forever for all that he has revealed to us. So he doesn't hold us accountable for the things that we don't know. So that we may obey all the terms of these instructions. We believe here at City Life, let me share this thought with you, that there will never be the fullness of Psalm 2713 realized in our lives until we embrace Deuteronomy 2929 and become Isaiah 10, 27 fat. The imagery of the muskox we're explaining it every week is because you will never see this animal with a yoke upon it because it is too big and it is too strong to be yoked. And that's the image that you're supposed to have of your own spiritual life. That when the enemy comes to try to put bondage on you, when temptation comes to you, it looks at the yoke and it looks at you and it says it's never going to fit. It's never going to fit. So let's talk a little bit about yokes. After the first service, I, I heard some, 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 some chatter th- from some people that I know amongst some of the young people that say, I don't even know what a yoke is except for an egg, you know? What is he talking about? What is he talking about? So there's a picture of, of, of there's all different kinds of yoke, but that's when it would go around the, the neck of, of an oxen. And, 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 if, and if, if that picture were to keep going, you would see the same thing on the other side. And so a team of oxen could be yoked together, either to, uh, for a cart or sometimes a pole would be attached that would just drag heavy things on the, on the ground. It was, it, was, it was modern day ingenuity in an ancient time. But all throughout the Bible, it takes this as a metaphor and it uses it to describe our experience in life. So I want to talk a little bit about yokes because what I'm not saying is that you should live a yoke-free life. What I am saying is you should have the right yokes. You should have the right yokes. Acts 26, 14. And when we all had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice. So this is, he's not the Apostle Paul yet, he's Saul from Tarsus, he's murdering Christians, right? He's, it's not even called Christianity yet, it's called the people of the way, and, and, and the, the, the early church is just beginning to, to form, and, and, and he has made it his personal mission to make sure that it comes to an end. He's on his way to Damascus. He's, he has been authorized. He's been deputized to go to that city. He's coming from Jerusalem and to begin to put down Christianity in Damascus just as he's been successfully doing it in Jerusalem. 
When we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me and saying in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Listen to what the text says. This is, I'm reading out of the New King James. It is hard for you to kick against the goats. G-O-A-D-S. Now again, different translations render uh, uh, what Paul was reflecting on for his road to Damascus experience. And earlier in Acts, we're given the description of, of, of what happened to Paul as it was happening. But, but then later as Paul, right, when we get to Acts 26, he begins to reflect on it and he adds this detail that's not in the first story. It's not a contradiction, it's what the Bible does. It gives us pieces of the story at different times in the text. And then you put it all together to get the complete picture. That's why we have four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All of them collectively together give us the full picture of the life and the ministry of Christ. But here Paul recounts a statement that Jesus, when he appeared to him, said, it is hard for you to kick against the goad. Now, most of us are not familiar with what a goad is, but in Paul's day, it was something very specific. A goad was a long pole or stick that had a really pointy end. And when you're driving a team of oxen or whatever beast of burden that is yoked to your wagon or is yoked to whatever harness, whatever you're trying to move, the logs or the rocks or whatever, and, and the oxen are being obstinate or whatever beast of burden that you're using is not doing what it's supposed to do, you reach for the goat and you give them a poke right in the rear end. And then the pain and the prodding from the goad reminds the beast of burden who's in control. It reminds the beast of burden who the authority is. There is no goad without a yoke. There, a goad has no effective use if there's no yoke. In fact, I would argue that it's probably pretty dangerous to wander out into a field where there's a beast of burden that probably weighs a couple of thousand pounds and start poking it with a sharp stick. You don't poke an animal that big with a sharp stick unless it's yoked. The imagery is important because what Jesus is saying to Paul is, Paul, I have a yoke on your life because I'm supposed to be your master and I have a will and a plan and a purpose for you. You were supposed to be yoked to me, but you keep wandering off the path to do your own thing. And the irony is that Paul actually thought he was serving God by doing the very things that God did not want him to do, right? We call that deception. And so Jesus is up there, right, with Paul, and he's, he's poking and prodding him with this goad, not because he's angry, not because he's frustrated, not because he's irritated, but because he loves him. Because he loves him. And he wants Paul to get onto his path, onto the destiny that he was born and created for. Whenever you accept a yoke, you are accepting both a direction and an influence, a destination, and a master. 
Whenever you accept a yoke, you are accepting both a direction and an influence, a destination and a master. If we can mix metaphors going back to Vanessa and what she was sharing in the worship wrap-up, things that you put your hope in, if you put your hope in them long enough, they become a yoke around your neck. This series is not about living a yoke-free life. This series is about being rightly yoked so that you will begin to shed all the yokes that don't belong to you so that there's nothing competing in your life for the one yoke that should define you, which is your ultimate submission to who Christ is. And so that he has to use the goat as little as possible. Jesus talked about yokes. In fact, this verse where Jesus talks about yokes is probably one that many of you are familiar with. Even if you've not been around church, you've, you've heard Jesus quoted, right? My yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is out of Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30. Let's look at that. Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30, it says, Then Jesus said, Come to me, all you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, right? Sounds like Isaiah 40. What's he say? He says, I'll give you rest. What he doesn't say is take off your yoke so you can live a yoke-free life. No, in verse 29, he says, take my yoke upon you. Take my yoke. Let me teach you because I am humble and I am gentle at heart, which means that he only uses the goad when he absolutely has to. He's only going to poke you with a sharp stick when you really deserve it. And you will find rest for your souls. What a promise. Some of you here tonight, you're just weary. You're just weary. And God's answer for you is put on the right yoke and watch that weariness begin to disappear. Listen to what he says in verse 30. Listen to what he says. My yoke is easy. My yoke is easy to bear and the burden I give you is light. It's important. He doesn't say, I'm setting you loose into the pasture for a lifetime of spiritual retirement so you'll never know what it feels like to be yoked or carry a burden ever again. That's not what he says. He says, I want you to be yoked and be to, to be yoked by me because I'm the only one who should have that kind of authority over your life. And I've got burdens for you. He's got burdens that he wants to give to you. He's got burdens that he's given to me. That's called your purpose and your destiny. And there's a weightiness to it. Yoke was a very specific uh, term in Hebrew culture in Jesus' day. It was the metaphor that, that was used to describe a rabbi's interpretation of the Mosaic Law. So when you, you, you literally, you yoked yourself to a specific rabbi and you said, I'm going to live according to their interpretation of the law. Jesus was saying, follow my yoke because my yoke is the only one that's true because my understanding of God's word is true because I wrote it. Right? That's what he can say. But I love that he says that his burden is light. We love talking about this text here at City Life because the word there for burden is the same word in Hebrew that's used for a ship's cargo. One of the things that fascinates me in living in this area and the, the shipyard just down the road, how is it possible that an aircraft carrier does not sink? I know, right? There's half the people in this room work the shipyard, they'll answer that question for you. 
I can't figure that out. And then not only does the ship doesn't sink, but then think of all the cargo that they add to it once it's made. How does it not sink? Because it's made to carry it. Can you imagine if God pulled you aside and showed you all the burdens that he wants to carry, wants you to carry in this life? If he put them in a pile, we would go, yeah, I, that's not going to happen. I, I can't do it. I can't do it. And some of you, that's how you feel right now. And God says to you, oh, yes, you can. Yes, you can. Because like a ship, it's why that's the word that's used. Because like a ship, he made you uniquely to carry the burdens that he has for you. He made you uniquely. So when you get to Galatians 6 and it talks about bear one another's burdens, it's, it's not saying that, you, that there are going to be times where God calls you to carry the burden that belongs to someone else because we've got to understand the Bible in light of itself and you've got to understand Galatians in light of Matthew. What God is saying there is there are going to be times where you come along beside people and you don't pick up the burden. To bear one another's burdens is for us to come along beside other people and say, you can pick that up. You can carry that. God made you for it. Bearing one another's burdens about is encouraging people to understand and to trust that the burdens that he has placed upon them, he's done it knowingly and with perfect wisdom. And he, know exact, he knows exactly the life that he's called you to live and the burden that you're supposed to carry. And then at some point you turn a corner. At some point you turn a corner. And the burdens that God puts on your, in your life become your greatest joys. They become your... The devil wants you to view those burdens as a curse. And all of a sudden... Clarity comes and you begin to see that these are some of the greatest blessings that God has ever given to you. The joy of a burden that's given to me by my master because I'm yoked to him. And that one day may it be that he just breaks the goad over his knee because I'm never trying to work against his will. All right, let me introduce you to two men in the Bible. We're not going to be able to do all of it tonight. We'll just push it to next week. Two men in the Bible, right? Because I want to keep bringing this series on Break the Yoke back to stewardship and generosity. Because two of the pathways that we believe that are part of the spiritual fatty foods that are oftentimes missing from our lives as devoted followers of Christ are these two, stewardship and generosity. We've, again, in that green book, we define what they are. We connect them to verses in the Bible, if you're curious, but oftentimes these pathways are missing, these fatty foods are missing, and, and this is why your life will spiritually atrophy and, 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 you, and you won't grow to the degree that you need to break off some of the yokes that are on you right now. These two men are Hophni and Phinehas. Hophni and Phinehas. They're Eli's sons. And I want to read to you out of 1 Samuel chapter 2, 1 Samuel chapter 2, 12 to 14, 12 to 14. It says, now the sons of Eli were scoundrels. Yeah. It's not the way you want to make it into Scripture, right? <laughs> the sons of Eli were scoundrels who had no respect for the Lord or for their duties as priests. And whenever anyone offered a sacrifice, Eli's sons would send over a servant with a three-pronged fork. And while the meat of the sacrificed animal was still boiling, the servant would stick the fork into the pot and demand that whatever it brought up be given to Eli's sons. And all the Israelites who came to worship at Shiloh were treated this way. 
Now, there's all kinds of offerings. There's all, there's all kinds of offerings that God prescribed the nation of Israel to practice, and each one of them in their own way give us prophetic insight into our relationship with Christ. It's called typology. There's great study resources out there. New Unger's Bible Dictionary. If you like to dig a little deeper, that would be a great resource to add to your library. It breaks down every one of the sacrifices, all what, what they were, how they were practiced. And because of the details that are in here, many, many scholars believe that what's being referenced here is specifically the peace offering. Because it's the only offering in its practice where the person who's making the offering ends up cooking some of the meat for themselves. And through that little detail, a window opens up that it's a peace offering. Now, the peace offering is, is unique because it's voluntary. There's three different kinds of peace offerings, so we don't know which one it was specifically. And In fact, the text is really saying every time this happens. So regardless of which peace offerings, but they're all voluntary offerings. Many of the offerings are prescribed for certain situations and certain circumstances, but the peace offering, this is you get to come and do it whenever you want to. And you bring your animal into the temple area, and, and there will be a priest that is on assignment that day. All the priests did not live at the temple all the time. It was like the military. It's when they were deployed and they had different units and they were deployed at certain times and they would live at the temple and then they would go back and live with their families. And the different priests had different duties. They had different assignments based on the, the day, right? There's a duty sheet. And when the priest that was assigned that day for the priest offering, they, they, when the people would come and have a priest offering, they would bring the animal in, and, and, and the family that was offering the animal as a peace offering, they would place their hands on the head of the animal. And it was to signify that this animal is going to die on their behalf. And then it would be slaughtered right there. You read the Old Testament, there's some bloody stuff. If you think church is weird today, go back, go back in time a few thousand years. And then God prescribed certain parts of the animal would be set aside for all the priests that were on duty so that they would have sustenance and be able to survive. There was provision for them. And then other parts of the animal was set aside for the specific priest who officiated the sacrifice. So certain parts went to all the priests collectively. Certain parts went to that particular priest. Certain parts were burned as an offering. And then certain parts were taken back home by the family that brought the priest offering. And then they had to cook and consume the meat within two days. So when you read here in the text that somebody from the temple who was a servant or an assistant to Hophni and Phinehas was sticking a fork in a pot to draw the meat out because of what we know about the peace offering, this was happening in the homes of the people. It was not happening at the temple because the meat was not cooked there for them. The, their meat was cooked in their home. And when you begin to dig deep into this, you realize how egregious it is what they're doing. They are using their knowledge as spiritual leaders of sacred and solemn activities of people's lives, and they're taking that knowledge, and they know when that person shows up with a peace offering, they notice who it is, 
And they know that they're going to be cooking that meat within the next couple of days. And so they're staking out that home and waiting for that meat to be prepared, storming into the house uninvited and taking from them a portion that belongs to them. Can you? Of course they were scoundrels. In fact, there's probably some better words that would fit in there, but because it's the Bible, it's just left to the imagination. When you read it just on the surface, it's bad enough, but when you dig a little bit deeper, you're like, this is absolutely despicable. Now, if, if we were to keep reading, if we had time, it says that eventually they stopped sticking the fork in the pot and started just saying to the people before it was cooked, give it to me. Give it to me. Now I'm going to get into that next week, what that really represents for us. But for tonight, I mention it because it's a powerful example of how temptation works in our lives. You see, at first, as a priest, what they were doing, because we understand priestly culture, by sticking the fork in the pot and just keeping whatever is drawn out, it's their way of justifying their sinfulness by saying whatever ends up on the fork is by God's design because it's by chance whatever comes out, right? It's, they're, 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 they're taking the concept of casting lots and using it. And they're, they're perverting it. But if you keep reading, it says eventually they just abandon that. They just even abandon their justification and just said, Give it to me. I'm going to take what I want. Because that's how temptation works. The devil knows he cannot get you to go from here to here. But you know what he does know? He can get you to go from here to here. Because that doesn't feel that far. And then he gets you to go to here. And then eventually you find yourself over here. And you look back over there, and you don't even care anymore. Temptation desensitizes the heart to the degree that you actually become emboldened in your sin. To where you don't care what God thinks, and you don't even care what other people think. These were the spiritual leaders of a nation. Sons of a father. Never disciplined. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. We're going to dig more into that story next week. It's so powerful. I'm sharing that story with you tonight because I want to, I want to challenge you with a hard question. Are you living with your fork in the pot? Are you living with your fork in the pot? Because God's got really specific ideas about what belongs to you and about what belongs to others. He does. And I feel like that as Christians, we use a lot of reasons to justify taking the portion that belongs to someone else. And oftentimes those reasons and excuses and justifications, they, they, they feel 
reasonable and justifiable. But next week, as we dig further into the story, what I hope that you're going to see is the reason why God puts these stories and then includes them in lists like he will do as we dig into it next week. And he lists some of the other things that they're doing. He compares it to other acts to make sure that we will never explain away the seriousness of certain actions in our lives today. See, because as we're on this journey going from here to here, to here, to here, to here. You know what we're also doing at the same time? We're looking at other people who were already over there and we start to think about how terrible they are. But all along, we're right behind them. Maybe for different things, maybe for different reasons, for different practices, but it's one of the ways that we begin to justify our behavior is that we begin to say to ourselves and to others, well, at least I'm not as bad as them. The question is supposed to be, how bad is this God in your eyes? Because I only want to be yoked to you. And I only want you to be the one who has a goat in your hand to point me and prod me, right, back over to here. Back over to here. In a life of right living. And for so many people, stewardship, and generosity are absent from people's lives. And the consequence is many, but one of them is that you live a life with your fork in the pot, taking a portion that was never intended to belong to you. Stand with me. Father, as we step into this moment of of worship tonight, I, I, I pray that Whatever it is that that you're speaking to people, and we know that you're speaking lots of different things to lots of different people in this moment. And I, I, I pray, Father, that you would give them a sense of focus right now. Right now, you would give them a sense of focus. That they wouldn't be distracted by the situation that they're dealing with. That they wouldn't be cognizant so much of the person that's standing next to them or what other people might think of them, God. that they, I pray that you would enable them in their heart right now to, to imagine that they're the only person that's in this room. That they're here by themselves. And that they would have a conversation with you. They would feel your presence. They would sense your voice. And maybe for someone here, they would have a sense of just taking yokes off their neck and laying them down. One after another, after another, after another. And they would leave here just as yoked as they were when they came in. But one that fits a little bit differently. And one that's tethered to a perfect God. step into a moment of prayer with you. I hope you take advantage of that tonight.